First, you've got to get out of the cell. Each bar has six hard, smaller bars set in a steel tube with extra steel poured in. And there ain't no way to tunnel out either. Hmm. Shit. This island is solid rock. See that water? It's over a mile swim to land. The coverage make it seem like 10. The water's so cold, it will numb your arms in a matter of minutes. And even if you are a good swimmer, man, you won't have the time to make it. There are 12 counts every day. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Days after the bloody incident with Doc in the hatchet, the men sat down in the cafeteria to have dinner. Frank placed her chrysanthemum on the table in honor of the kindly old man who wasn't with them anymore. The warden, however, walked over and told Frank that this is against prison regulations. Taking the flower, the warden crushed it in his hands. Another older inmate, the one they call Litmus, got so upset that he stood up in anger, but before he could do anything, he collapsed to the ground. He had had a fatal heart attack. The warden looked on without emotion and coldly stated, some men are destined never to leave Alcatraz. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. I'll be your host for today. My name is Jeff Kelly, and it looks like I'll be flying solo for this episode. And since it's the first Monday of the month, I'll be talking about a film based on a true story. On this episode, I have the story of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers who battle an evil warden and try to escape from a federal penitentiary. It's the 1979 film Escape from Alcatraz, directed by Don Siegel and starring Clint Eastwood, Patrick McGowan, and Fred Ward. I may have found a way out of here. Now, I decided to do this episode because, well, I'm sort of an expert when it comes to Alcatraz. I've got personal experience with this federal penitentiary. By personal experience, I mean I visited the island about a year and a half ago, and by expert, I mean I listened to the little audio player they give you while walking around the cell area. You know, the thing that surprised me when I visited Alcatraz was... There wasn't a tour. You take a boat over, and once you arrive, you're free to just walk around and do whatever. At one point, you walk into the cell area, and they give you a little device that you can listen to that sort of works as your tour guide. You can listen to it or not, depending on what you want to do. In our group, some of us, like myself, listen to the whole thing. Others, eh, they listen to a little bit of it and then just walked around. What is interesting is that the recording features many of the actual inmates 
who served time at the prison, and they give you an insight on what life was like when they were incarcerated there. One thing I can tell you about Alcatraz is that not only is it a scary place, but it's also a windy place as well. Summer's coming on. It's getting cooler. Weather here is as crazy as the rock. Maybe crazier. If you've ever been to the San Francisco Bay Area, you'll know what I mean. We walked around the outside recreation area, and, I, and I'm telling you, the wind was something else. If it's like that all the time, I could see it making a man go crazy. I wonder if the filmmakers had to pick certain times of day to film those scenes where the wind maybe wasn't so fierce. Now, I saw all the cells of the men who escaped, and they have them set up to look like they did when the men took off. But the thing I remember most about my time on Alcatraz is the story of Robert Stroud, the so-called Birdman of Alcatraz. Apparently, no one liked him, not the guards or the other inmates. Nobody. And, you know, he never had birds on Alcatraz. Perhaps I should have done that film, but no, I'll save us all time here by telling you that that movie is mostly fiction. Anyway, we're here to talk about Escape from Alcatraz. Okay, the first thing you need to know is, while there are a lot of things that are known about the escape, there are still many things in question. You see, in the film, there's a character named Charlie Butts, played by Larry Hankin. What's your name, kid? Charlie Butts. Charlie's butt? Butts. Butts. Charlie Butts. <laughs> you got a funny friggin' name, kid. Yeah. What's your name? Al Capone. You might remember Hankin from Seinfeld. He's the one who plays the man who is going to play Kramer in the TV show Jerry. Anyway, that character, Butts, is based on Alan West, the fourth man in the escape plot. Most of what we know about the planning of the escape is from what West told authorities afterwards. In later years, he made it sound like he was the brains behind the whole thing. But personally, I would call his tale, well, unreliable. I've heard over and over in documentaries that Alan West was the true mastermind behind the plan, but I really think that's, well, questionable, to say the least. But unlike in the film in which Butts chickens out until it's too late, West, on the other hand, had planned to go but failed to finish removing his screen grate, or he did remove it, but the glue he used to keep it in place was too strong. So on the night of the escape, even with the help of one of the Anglin brothers, couldn't get it removed in time. Once he got it removed and made it to the launching point, the others had left without him, so he just went back to his cell and climbed back into bed. Now, one thing I like about this film is it starts immediately with Frank Morris, as played by Clint Eastwood, arriving at Alcatraz. Welcome to Alcatraz. There's no silly backstory or some scenes to make us sympathize with this character. Nope, he's a bad guy, and he's being put into a maximum security prison. And here's a little side note here. The boat that he arrives in was the actual boat they used to take prisoners to the island back in the day. 
Now, when I watched this film, I just assumed that his arrival on a cold and rainy night was created for dramatic purposes. But now I'm reading the book Escape from Alcatraz by J. Campbell Bruce, the nonfiction book that this film is based on, and it seems he did arrive at night and it was raining, so that's accurately portrayed. The following day, he meets the warden, played by Patrick McGowan. The warden right away lets him know that this prison is unique within the U.S. prison system for its exceedingly high level of security and that no inmate has ever successfully escaped. Before Morris leaves his office, he's able to steal the warden's nail clippers. Here's the thing. The warden character is fictional. When the real Morris arrived, Warden Paul J. Madigan had been in charge, and during Morris's time there, Madigan was replaced by Olin G. Blackwell. Blackwell, interestingly, had thought himself to have been the least strict warden of Alcatraz, perhaps in part due to him being a heavy drinker and smoker. Neither of the two wardens sound too much like the character played by McGowan, but, according to the book, some of the dialogue was sort of accurate. Visitors, you're allowed two a month. They cannot be former inmates of this or any other federal prison. All names that you submit will be carefully checked by the FBI. What names do you have in mind? I can't think of any offhand. Family members? None, no family. According to the book, Morris was actually talking to the classification patrol officer, and the real conversation went something like this. After you're here three months, you'll be permitted two visitors a month. He informed Morris. Neither can be a former inmate of another prison. Kind of sets a limit, said Morris. I'd like the names now of the two people you want to visit you. Can't think of any. Members of your immediate family? No family. Relatives? No relatives. The officer hastily checked a document. Sorry, a girl, some friends. Mister, you just said I couldn't see my friends. How about correspondence? You can send out two letters a week, receive seven. Same rules? The officer nodded. Outgoing mail carries an Alcatraz postmark? Of course, said the officer. Check that off the list too, Morris said. In the book, there's a lot of dialogue, and I couldn't help but think to myself, where did all that dialogue come from? Now, there's nothing in the book about the man known as English, played by Paul Benjamin, the black man Morris befriends. And there's nothing about Wolf Grace, the overweight rapist, played by Bruce M. Fisher. Both, I assume, were added to give a little taste of what Alcatraz was actually like. And much of the conversation with English, and the warden as well, seems to be more for the audience's benefit, giving a little exposition. Robert Blossom plays Chester Doc Dalton. While this character is fictional, he's based on a real-life character, Rufe Percival, a prisoner of Alcatraz in the 1930s. Well, actually, the character really wasn't based on Percival. Percival was not a kindly elderly painter, like in the film, but a ruthless murderer, one of the most dangerous men in America. 
He had grown mentally ill, and by 1937, or so the legend goes, life at Alcatraz finally got to him, and he chopped off four of his fingers. In the film, Doc is a painter. The warden discovers that he's been painting portraits of him, and while the portraits are done respectfully, the warden decides to take away his painting privileges. I want painting privileges taken away from Chester Dalton. Doc? Cell 233. What's the reason? You're the deputy warden. You think of what? Painting's all I have. I'm sorry, Doc. So, in a deep depression, Doc hacks off several fingers of his left hand with a hatchet from the prison's workshop. You hear there was a slight accident in one of the shops? Accident? Oh, you mean Doc? Yeah, it seems someone didn't like what he was painting, so someone won't let him paint anymore. Someone should have warned Doc to be careful about what he paints. You're absolutely right, sir. There's always the possibility that some asshole will be offended. Later in the film, as I described at the beginning of the show, Morris places a chrysanthemum on the table during dinner to honor Doc. When the warden sees the flower, he crushes it. This causes another elderly inmate, Litmus, as played by Frank Ronzio, to have a heart attack. The warden looks on with a cold stare as the man lay dying on the ground, and he says to Morris, Some men are destined never to leave Alcatraz. Alive. Can you believe a person of authority could be so cold-hearted? Well, not here, because this never happened. But the fictional character of the warden is understandable. If the film had been a 100% accurate to the true story, it probably would have been a little dry. I can understand why some of the more colorful aspects of the film were added, like the petty and vengeful warden. When the main character of your story is a convict who's been in and out of prison since he was 13... You need to find a way to make him be the good guy, and the best way to do that is create a bad guy. As far as the main three, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, I think the film portrays them fairly accurately. Stay long? Uh, not long. Only about 15 or 20 years. Why the rock? We were going over the wall at Atlanta when we encountered a minor problem. Such as? They saw us. Yeah, that do present a problem. Now they shift us to Leavenworth. Yeah, but we didn't like the accommodations there either. Warden said he knew just the place for us. Alcatraz. Frank Morris was a smart man with an IQ of 133. Now an IQ of 140 is considered genius level, so he wasn't technically a genius, but he was a convict of superior intelligence. He had been abandoned by his parents when he was 11, and it was all downhill after that. I turned 35 today. Some birthday. Come on, man. When's your birthday? I don't know. Jeez, what kind of childhood you had? Short. He really did have a job at the prison for a while of passing around books to the other inmates, and he did have an accordion. The Anglin brothers were sons of a poor Georgia farmer, and I'm not sure why they turned to a life of crime, but they began robbing banks and other establishments as a team in the early 1950s. 
The thing is, they usually went to places that were closed to ensure no one got injured. They claim that they only used a weapon once during a bank heist, and it was a toy gun. Like mentioned in the film, they had been to prison with Morris previously, and that's how they knew each other. The fourth member, Charlie Butts, is nothing like his real-life counterpart, Alan West. Charlie tells Morris this sad story of stealing cars for kicks, and his wife visits him in this touching and sad scene. For the real-life Alan West, the car-stealing part was true, but West was a talker and also a racist. He had a lot more crimes than just stealing cars, and he also knew the other three from previous prison stays. Now, while the makers of the film took some artistic license with the story, the details of how they escaped seems to be pretty accurate. Of course, in the film, it's all the brainchild of Frank Morris, while later Alan West claimed that he was the genius. And if you're wondering whatever became of West, well, according to findagrave.com, on October 30th, 1972, he was stabbed by what is described as a racial-motivated incident and was taken to the Stans Teaching Hospital where he passed away. What the escape did for the prison itself was to make people realize that between its age and with the seawater that was eroding the steel and concrete, it was time to either shut it down or rebuild it. And then there was the cost. The penitentiary cost much more to operate than other prisons. Alcatraz was closed down about a year later in 1963. Forbidding Alcatraz Prison, from which no man has ever been known to escape, has its name for impregnability at stake. A daring break for freedom by three convicts triggers a manhunt through the caves with which the rock is riddled and throughout the entire San Francisco area. To satisfy the curiosity aroused in a story that would strain the credibility of any melodrama, reporters get the details from Warden Olin Blackwell and Assistant Director of Prisons Fred Wilkinson. The warden says eroding walls and steelwork allowed the three convicted bank robbers to make their way out with the aid of teaspoons and infinite patience. The convicts are Frank Lee Morris, who is reported to have masterminded the escape, and brothers Clarence and John William Anglin. The attempt was thoroughly and ingeniously worked out, even to planting lifelike dummies in their cots to fool guards making hourly bed checks. The same care was taken in disguising loosened ventilator covers with painted cardboard to hide the digging that month after month they were doing with sharpened teaspoons. After tunneling through a four-inch concrete wall, they climbed up a pipe shaft to the cell block roof. Then, in a series of incredible climbs and drops, they reached the water's edge. Coast Guard, Army, and police scour the swift waters of San Francisco Bay, through which they would have had to swim or go by raft to shore or nearby Angel Island. Their fiction-like bid for freedom makes history of a grimly fascinating sort. So, the film started with a book. J. Campbell Bruce published the book on the escape shortly after the events took place. His book, Escape from Alcatraz, was released in 1963. It was written into a screenplay by Richard Tuggle, who at the time had no real connection to the film industry and had never written a screenplay. Tuggle was living in San Francisco in the 1970s when he got a job with a tourist magazine. 
He was given the job of going to strip clubs and porno shops to look for advertisers. He often saw Alcatraz in the Bay, but he never visited it. He was like most people in San Francisco. Alcatraz is always there, but they never really think about it. One day, however, a friend convinced him to go take the tour, so off they were on a boat. Now, unlike today, like when I went, with hundreds of people wandering around, not many visited it back then. There was just a handful of people. But to Tuggle, the story of Frank Morris and the escape began to fascinate him. He thought it was the most amazing story he had ever heard in his entire life, and that it should be a movie. The problem was, who was he to write or make it? So a couple of years go by, and he gets fired from a job he had working on a hospital magazine and didn't know what to do next. He went to Fisherman's Wharf one day and stared out at Alcatraz and thought, what could I do to get the story into a movie? Looking over at the tourist stand, he saw a copy of Jay Campbell's book, and he bought it. Now the book, and this is something that I noticed, is mostly about the history of Alcatraz and other escape attempts. It only really gets to the film story about two-thirds of the way through it. But it was a good place for Tuggle to start. He found the author and said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to buy the rights to your book and turn it into a movie. And if it gets made, you'll get some of the money. Bruce said, hey, that's great, but the publisher has the rights, not me, so you're going to have to deal with them. After many phone calls and runarounds, he finally got someone to talk to. The woman said, we're going to give the rights back to the author so you can deal with him. When he asked, why would you do that? She said, look, the book is 12 years old, it's out of print, and the chances of you selling a screenplay and having it made into a movie are so slim... It's not worth our time. So he was off. He first needed to learn how to write a screenplay, and for that he bought a book. After that, he needed more information about the escape. Like I said, the book by Bruce, much of it isn't about the actual escape. He wound up at the FBI, and they showed him everything. The files, the evidence, including the fake heads and such. They provided him with a ton of information. Later, however, he went back to verify some information, and now there was a new guy running the department, and he said, you can't see that stuff. You should have never seen it. This is an open investigation. We are still looking for those three men. Tuggle said he laughed to himself, thinking, it's been 12 years, buddy. Good luck with that. Anyway, he was able to finish his screenplay. Not knowing what to do next, he took it to a friend who was working in casting at Paramount. She offered to give it to the story department, and he thought, great, I'm in. But the story department hated it. He shopped it around for a while, but there was no interest. He was told it had poor dialogue and characters, lacked a love interest, and the public was just not interested in prison stories. Frustrated, he decided to go to the source, right to the filmmakers themselves. He was able to contact director Don Siegel's agent. The agent said he would read it. He told Tuggle to send him the script with a stamped return envelope. But since Tuggle only lived a few blocks from the agent's office, he decided to take it over himself to save the postage. After all, money was tight. He was giving it to the secretary when the agent walked in. He asked Tuggle, 
who he was. Tuggle explained that he was the guy who he had just talked to on the telephone and thought he would just bring the script to him in person. The agent said, hand me the script. And once it was in his hands, he handed it right back and said, now take it home and send it to me like I told you to. Eventually, Siegel read the script and agreed to direct it, and he picked Clint Eastwood to star. Now, Clint had been in four other Don Siegel films, Coogan's Bluff, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, The Beguiled, and Dirty Harry. But now, Eastwood was a big or even bigger name than Siegel, and Clint Eastwood wanted to produce the film under his production company, Mel Paso. Siegel wanted to do it under his production company. Siegel quickly bought the rights to the story for $100,000 before Eastwood could buy the rights. The two had a bit of a falling out, and for a while, Siegel looked for somebody else to star in the movie, but eventually they settled on the fact it would be produced under the banner Malpaso slash Siegel Productions. But this caused a problem between the two, and after this film, they never worked together again. Siegel began working with Tuggle to refine the script. Now, there were problems with filming in Alcatraz. One was the Native American occupation in 1969. To protest federal policies related to American Indians, a group called the United Indians of All Tribes, which was made up mostly of college students from San Francisco, took over the island. It was a two-year occupation for the purpose of having the island's facilities be adapted and new structures built for an Indian education center, ecology center, and cultural center. Now that's a whole separate story, but the bottom line is there was a lot of graffiti painted on the walls by the Native Americans, which are now considered historical. So the filmmakers had to come up with a way to hide those without destroying them. Some they were able to camouflage, but others they painted over with a peelable, water-soluble paint. When production was finished, the paint was carefully removed, leaving the graffiti the way it had been, and it's still there today. Another problem was power. The generators at Alcatraz had long since stopped working and couldn't be repaired, and most of the wiring was corroded. The producers laid 15 miles of cable under the bay to San Francisco for power. And then there was the general condition of the prison. It had been 15 years since its closure and had really gone downhill. Almost half a million dollars was spent on repairing, refurbishing, and painting it, trying to bring it back to the way it looked in 1962. Many of those updates are the reason why the attraction looks so good today. And the last problem they had was the tourists. The filmmakers were not allowed to shut down the island, so every 30 minutes, a boatload of visitors would arrive. A lot of the filming was done at night, but for the scenes that had to be filmed during the day, Clint Eastwood would often promise to meet with the tourists and sign autographs if they would just remain quiet while the cameras were rolling. Now, besides Clint, who I don't think I really have to talk about, the movie also stars Patrick McGowan as the warden. Alcatraz is not like any other prison in the United States. Here, every inmate is confined alone to an individual cell. McGowan lived from 1928 to 2009 and is probably most famous for his two TV roles. 
He was John Drake in the English spy program Danger Man, which was on from 1960 to 1968, which was known as Secret Agent in the U.S., and the wonderful surrealistic television series The Prisoner, in which he plays number six. He was also in such films as I Am Camera, Ice Station Zebra, Silver Streak, and Scanners. He's a great actor, but I don't like to see him play the bad guy, which he often does. Maybe that's because I'm such a big fan of The Prisoner. Fred Ward plays John Anglin. Ward lived from 1942 to 2022. His greatest role, of course, was that of Earl Bassett in Tremors in 1990. Escape from Alcatraz was one of his earliest roles. His other films include Southern Comfort, Uncommon Valor, The Right Stuff, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, and Henry in June. I think he's wonderful, and the only thing I can say for him here is, well, he's Fred Ward, and I'm okay with that. Jack Tabot plays Clarence Anglin. Jack was born in 1946, and as far as I know, is still alive today. I can't say I know him all that well. I mean, I don't recognize him from anything else. And that's probably because he never had a huge career. He often played characters with names like Musclehead, Coach Jackson, Detective, and Garage Soldier. I think he played minor characters in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. But he does do all right in the movie, even though he doesn't have a lot to do. Harry Hankins plays Charlie Butts. How you doing, neighbor? I'm Charlie Butts. He was born in either 1937 or 1938 and is still with us. He's one of those guys that are popping up in movies and TV all the time. One of those I-know-that-face type guys. English is played by Paul Benjamin. That was the last mistake they ever made. I got two 99-year sentences back to back. Seems like he could have pleaded self-defense. The dudes were white, man. Just like you. Benjamin lived from 1938 to 2019 and had a really long career, six decades long. He played the lead role in the film Lead Belly in 1976, and he was also in Do the Right Thing, The Five Heartbeats, The Super, and The Station Agent. Now, one more actor you might not know that is in this film is Danny Glover. This was his acting debut. Magazine or book? Where's English? What'd they do? Give a nigga a nigga of his own? Now, you might know Danny from the film Gone Fishing in 1997. Oh, yeah, there were all those Lethal Weapon films and a ton of other work. Danny's always fantastic. But you never really get to see him here. He's in a dark cell, his face is obscured, and it's only a quick 10-second scene. The film was masterfully directed by Don Siegel. Don lived from 1912 to 1991. He started being a montage director for such films as Voyager and Casablanca. One of his first big films he directed was the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. Besides the Eastwood films he made, he also directed The Killers in 1964 and The Shootist in 1976. Eastwood often cites Siegel as one of his main influences, along with Sergio Leone, and dedicated his 1992 film Unforgiven to both men. I really like the way he directed this film. I mean, from the opening, which sets the mood perfectly, and all throughout, the pacing, everything. 
Now, the film was originally planned to have Frank and the other men paddle out into the cold water at night, and then the guard discovering the dummy head of Frank Morris. That would be the end. Get up, Morris. It's moving day. I said get up, Morris. Open up 109. God damn it, Morris. I said get up. Jesus Christ. But Clint Eastwood didn't like that, so another scene was added in which the warden searches Angel Island and discovers a chrysanthemum on the rocks, giving the impression that the men made it to the island. Two chrysanthemums grow on this island. Not here on Angel Island. Why? I'm curious. The tides were mild in the fog light last night. They left at lights out. They had a nine and a half hour head start. I wonder if they made it. They drowned. Yes, sir. But it all worked. The film was considered one of the best films of 1979. It made $43 million on a budget of $8 million, so that's pretty good. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four and wrote... For all of its length, Escape from Alcatraz is a taunt and toughly wrought picture of life in prison. It is a masterful piece of storytelling in which the characters say little and the camera explains the action. Now, in general, I really enjoyed this movie. And if I have to have one complaint, one thing I didn't appreciate was the mouse. You see, Litmus has a pet mouse and... At one point, he uses the mouse to send a note to Frank, and I thought that was a tad silly, and now that I'm thinking about it, somebody's going to write me and say, no, no, that was real. But as far as I know, it wasn't. Um, as far as the music goes in this film, there wasn't much music. It was very minimal. You have stuff like this just subtly in the background. And there is the occasional tension build. But all in all, I like that. This movie didn't need the music. It sort of lets the visual stand by itself. As far as the actual three men, well, they were never heard from again. And, and I think officially, they are considered drowned but there's been a lot of bizarre information over the years that might suggest that they did survive. But that's another story for another day. Maybe I should bring back coffee with Jeff for that. There's a wonderful episode of Stuff You Should Know that really goes into detail about that, if you are interested. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, it's alive. A gigantic beast, dotting the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror, raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. Is this the end of our civilization? Can the scientists of the world find a way to stop this creature? For the answer, see Godzilla, King of the Monsters. More fantastic than any ever written by Jules Verne. More terrifying than any ever shown on the screen. Awesome. Incredible. 
unbelievable. A story beyond your wildest dreams. See Godzilla, King of the Monsters. A little bit before I go. You know, back when my job was watching films all night from midnight to 8 a.m., this is one of the films that I had to watch over and over again. And, you know, that was all right. It was better than a lot of them I had to watch back in the day. Now, watching it for this episode, it brought back memories of me sitting in my little cubicle area with six monitors around me. That Paramount logo coming up over and over again. Hey kids, back in the day, we had these things called VHS tapes, and I, well, you know, ask your grandparents anyway. If you have any thoughts about this film, or Alcatraz itself, Clint Eastwood, anything really, send me an email. I'm at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com, daysofcelluloid, all being one word. You can even email me just to say hi. I've also got a Facebook page, it's called Celluloid Days. And a Twitter page. It's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, we're going to do one of my favorite films, the 1954 Inishiro Honda classic Godzilla. I'll go into detail about how this movie came together and why it's still the best large monster film ever made. And I'm fully aware that the trailer I played was from the Americanized version with Raymond Burr. And while I'll mention that a little, most of my conversation will be about the original Japanese cut. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'm still fighting a cold. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but hopefully it'll be gone by next week. So take care, stay healthy. I'll talk to you later. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.